and welcome to this week's VFX show. Uh, I am Matt Wallen, and uh, this week uh, we are going to some pretty strange places. Uh, we're going to be talking about Darren Aronofsky's film Mother, or Mother, depending upon uh, how you want to interpret the exclamation point. And I am joined by the one who really wanted to do this show, uh, Jason Diamond. Jason, how's it going? Uh, excited. <laughs> it's All a right. trim down show. It's a lean show. Today. Yeah, it's just me and Jason. We're just going to talk about Mother. Uh, we couldn't get anyone else who wanted to watch the movie to talk about it with us. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know if they wanted to watch it. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> it was hard to tell, like, if they wanted to watch it or if they were, you know, too busy to watch it. I think they um, were scared. It could be. Could be. So, um, you know, we, we kind of have a long, uh, at this point, a pretty long history of looking at and talking about the films of Darren Aronofsky on this show, um, going back to, uh, I think the first one of his we did, I, I hope this is correct, was uh, Black Swan. And Black uh, Swan, no. did the, we do? The Fountain. We did The Fountain, though. Oh, did we do The Fountain? Yeah, I know. I think I'm pretty sure I did it. Yeah, so, okay, so going back to The Fountain, which had a huge amount of... Um, practical uh, and some unusual yeah. photographic effects in it. And then Black Swan, which uh, I know it was one of my favorite films of his. I think it's probably his most populist film. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we did a big show on Noah, which was kind of exciting too, because that was uh, a pretty good sized uh, ILM show, I think at the time. And he's come back now with uh, his new film, Mother. <laughs> and uh, in this show, we've got actually... I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I think he said there's more visual effects in this than what was in Noah. And you've got uh, the overall production visual effects supervisor on the show is Dan Schrecker, who's worked with Aronofsky before. Um, you have, uh, I believe it's Matthew Renault or Renault, uh, but um, from Renault or Renault VFX. Forgive my pronunciation if that's wrong. And then we've got... Um, Ben Snow, uh, who we all know from yeah. uh, in from Iron Man and uh, films of that ilk, and Ben Snow is the visual effects supervisor for Industrial Light and Magic, who's also back again um, for some visual effects on the show. So, before we get into talking about any of the effects stuff, uh, we should probably discuss the film. And uh, everybody should know. I think spoiler alert uh, is in full oh, yeah. effect here. But um, Jason, let's start with you. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what did you think of this movie? Uh, I went into this movie cold. Like I saw the trailer uh, once, you know, and I was like, I have no idea what this movie's about. And then I saw the trailer again before it. And it was, I, I just wanted, this might seem long-winded, but I, I really am interested in how they marketed this movie because having seen the movie, I can understand the challenges in not knowing how to market it sure. a, without giving stuff away and B without really telling people, Hey, by the way, this is not a horror movie. It's, or a thriller. It's an art movie. Right. <laughs> but we want to do a wide release. What was it like 2000 theaters? It was like a huge release, right? Yeah. Yeah. Really and, wide. And so the, the last trailer I saw like days before it came out, was like it showed that it was a different trailer with not still not much going on in terms of knowing what was happening because contextually you you really need to have context for this uh uh movie to see a scene 
and they were flashing these, literally these big words on the screen. You will not forget where you were when you saw blah, blah, blah. And it was like, <laughs> what the, what is this about? Like, this is yeah. weird. So then, yeah, I just went and saw it one night by myself, uh, I think opening weekend. And I had my mind completely blown. Uh, I, I mean, are I'm, you, I'm, are you an Aronofsky fan? I am it? a huge Aronofsky fan. Yeah. Right. On. I, I, I think, I think Aronofsky is, if you take out of the the movie thing and just his observations using movies, the man is a mystic, like in terms of understanding and like esoteric thought, he's able to take things like the fountain, which, you know, it has Mayan, you know, uh, influences in ancient Spain and, or not ancient Spain, but, you know, like medieval Spain and, mm -hmm. uh, and the future and whatever, and give it this esoteric thread of mysticism, I think is really the only way you could say it. Like if it was, if he was, he would be a mage or something, you know, like, uh, way back in the middle ages or something. If, uh, if, uh, if he wasn't born now, um, well, and he's kind of you guys share some uh, some similar background too, right? And I think he's a he's a New Yorker, right? By, yeah, Coney Island. I have yeah. a bunch of friends that, that he grew up with, um, and uh, I yeah, I mean, I just ever since you know seeing Pi and Requiem and and all the movies, and and the the Fountain is one of my favorites, um, and uh, so anyway, already being a fan. Mm -hmm. um, and not really being let down by any, any of his movies, you know, they, some are better than others. And if you want to, you know, start categorizing within his own thing. Sure. We, but, yeah, we could always probably go and rank any filmmakers. Yeah, they're all movies. good, you know, yeah. but they're all, in my, in my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, I was just like, I have no idea what's happening and I'm, and I'm totally in, I'm totally down with this. Like in the beginning of the third act, the two people, two of the people sitting behind me got up and left. Uh, and I think they just didn't understand it. I'm not, not, not saying that judgmentally, sure. you know, my interpretation because we're already deep into the spoiler world. My interpretation, which I think after reading a ton of articles about it and everything is, I mean, it's creation, it's the Bible, it's, you know, modern day issues of celebrity and all that stuff all jammed into this super claustrophobic mystic story about God and mother earth. Mm -hmm. And, and to me, the two closest movies, if someone asked me to, you know, say like, Oh, well, what is it like? It's like, it's got the vibe and the sort of confusing yet understandability of, of Charlie Kaufman's synecdoche, sure, which is yeah, also like a, a brain melter mm -hmm. and the wall, Pink Floyd's the wall. Oh yeah. That's, that's cool. I would not have thought of that, but that's actually a great, that's a really good one. Because, because of the ramping nature of the, how the, how the movie just completely just goes off the deep end in the most incredibly amazing way. Uh, and I, I'm saying that respectfully, like I loved where it went, but I was just like, the first time I saw it, I was just like, what is happening? Where is this going? What? You know, like, and then, and then I, when the second time my brother was like, oh, he was out of town and he was like, oh, I really want to see it. I said, let's go. And we went and it was 
like I got to see, you know, pick up on a bunch of stuff the second time because I was prepared for what was happening. Sure. But it was great to look over to my brother and have him look at me and be like, what is what happening? Is you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. it's interesting. It's one that, um, you know, I've, I've been a fan of Aronofsky's uh, films going back probably to uh, Requiem for a Dream. I don't know that, I don't think I saw Pi in the theaters when it came out that one somehow just, it, I just missed it. I mean, I saw it later on video, but, um, you know, I think he's a really unique and interesting voice. I'm so glad that there is a filmmaker like him who's out there making work like this, like fairly, mm -hmm. uh, you know, daring, audacious kind of auteur uh, style work. He certainly has his own, um, areas of interest as well. You know, it seems yeah. like thematically his films all kind of, uh, I think you describe it really well, sort of a, a sort of a, a mystic, uh, what is it, a Gnostic kind of uh, yeah. qualities in, in a lot of his stories. Um, I think he he certainly has a sophisticated understanding of um, cinematic form in terms of mm -hmm. how he constructs his narratives and and character. I still think um, to the wrestler is probably one of his oh uh, yeah really strongest uh, traditional narratives too. I mean, such an right. interesting uh, and and a lot of you know body kind of body horror, I think, in a lot of his work. Yeah, but um, the interesting thing is he always chooses, well, he, uh, when I say mm -hmm. uh, Aronofsky, we can't leave out Maddie Libatique, who is his right sure. hand, right? He's shot totally. everything but The Wrestler. Mm -hmm. um, and, but he always has like either, like in The Fountain, he has a geom geometry play where the first act is triangles, the second act is squares, and the third act is circles. You know what I mean? There's always some sort of geometric, uh, you know, arcane thing happening. And in The Wrestler, he did this thing where he starts the movie behind the main character. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it follows him throughout most of the movie. And as the movie progresses, the camera slowly comes around into profile. And so by the end of the movie, he's, the camera is fully in front of him. Yeah. That's interesting. And, yeah. and so cool. it's super subtle, but like, and of course there's scenes where, where the camera is not on his back, but it's a general vibe of camera direction. And, and similar to this movie in this movie, he picked three shots. There's the super close up on Jennifer Lawrence. Yep. There's the close up over her shoulder mm -hmm. and then there's her POV. Those are, there's literally only three camera angles in this movie and it's shot on super 16. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's so a really interesting like, aspect too. You know, like they were very limited in their choices. Like their blocking had to be spot on. Everything had to be spot on. Um, and that's a challenge, right? You know, to give yourself those constraints. Yeah. I think, you know, kind of getting into that a little bit more too, you know, one of the things, you know, you, you say that this is really the marketing of it is kind of skewed that, you know, they sort of sell it as a horror film, but it's really an art film. And I think you could make the case that, uh, certainly in what you're describing, like, you know, uh, in the fountain sort of, uh, thinking about, uh, shapes and geometry. And I think, uh, I'd never noticed that in the wrestler, but the movement of the camera slowly around from the back to the front of a character, um, those are choices. I think that, I think some, some traditional directors, you know, think that way in a really, uh, multi-layered way about cinema, about the cinematic form, but you do see it so much more often in, um, I guess, you know, what, for lack of a better term would be either an art film or, art, you know, art that's made, um, right. 
in a way, using uh, video or cinematic techniques. I worked for 10 years for um, the American artist Matthew Barney doing like visual effects work for him. And he had a really interesting approach. Um, I haven't worked on his last couple of projects just because, you know, my life's kind of changed too. But um, he had a really interesting approach to storytelling and that I think he was always really interested in not so much cinematic form, but cinema as he always talked about cinema as sculpture and the, like telling stories and creating stories that had a sculptural form and they would use a narrative to derive sculpture uh, from the form. The first film of his I saw was this film called Cream Master 4 where you had these two sidecar motorcycle uh, racers, one, one uh, blue and one yellow, and they race in opposite directions around the uh, ring road on the Isle of Man where they hold the tourist trophy mm. motorcycle race. And, uh, you know, there's a, a several events that take place, but by the end of the film, the two crash into each other and uh, blue and yellow make green. And <laughs> I mean, there's all these kind of really uh, strange kind of ideas of characters as as vectors, you know, like they right. follow a particular trajectory. Um, and I think, you know, when you look at film and you think of cinema as just straight up art and start to abstract some of the sort of tropes and traditions and concepts of cinema, you can get into some really interesting areas. I've always thought that um, Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey is is one of the, you know, biggest budget experimental movies ever made. Oh, I think for sure. it's, it's too uh, an art film. And I think this movie really does cross over into that territory in some really interesting um, and certainly intentional ways. But it's something that I think what you say about the marketing is certainly true, but also it's something that I find so interesting in just my peers and my friends who I talk to about movies. It's a really divisive movie. Some oh, people yeah. I've met uh, like you and, and some of my other buddies, like they really dug it and they're like, man, that was just nuts, you know? And some people were really like put off by it too. And I think that's um, kind of a strange uh, and somewhat unexpected phenomenon. I'm surprised by sometimes the people who saw it and, we're really turned off by the whole thing. Even some people I know who are artists <laughs> yeah. watch the movie well, and were kind of put off by it in the sense that they thought it was like he was aping, you know, uh, like trying to make something that was art. But in the end, right. you know, they were dismissing it as if it wasn't sophisticated enough to be art or something. So it's kind of a funny place he finds himself in maybe as a filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I... I like to feel different kind kinds of, you know, like, like to be tense or kind of uncomfortable or like depressed or, you know, whatever the, I want a, a movie to make me feel all these. I want to be manipulated by the movie to feel all these things. Right. Sure. And, and I have a lot of friends who saw it who were like, well, I liked it, but I don't like feeling that tense. Right. So like <laughs> they're taking us, they're taking a separate, response to it it's not that they didn't so uh, a buddy of mine who's a cinematographer said i was like oh did you see mother we were talking about it we went to see a band play and i was like oh did you see mother and he's like <coughs> he said uh no i hated it he said yeah I, ha I saw it and i hated it but then i realized afterwards i can't stop thinking about it and i realized i loved it oh that's interesting yeah i mean so it was just like um I think there's a lot of people who have that like immediate shock response of like, what, what the fuck is this? I don't understand. Why is it crazy and going everywhere? And then realizing like, Oh, 
I think I kind of understand what it's about. And then you start to settle into it and think about it. And you're like, well, if I'm still thinking about it like three days after I saw it, I think I must like it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's definitely given me like uh, some interesting like late night uh, dreams, you know, about <laughs> holes in the floor and, yeah. you know, things spontaneously combusting for no reason and, you know, bugs. And um, yeah. there's all kinds of certainly interesting um, visuals in it. I think too, like, you know, the film as allegory um, is really interesting in that. It's, it's th- only allegory, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, you know I, I mean? think there's no there's no real literal there's no reality, discernible no. plot or reality, yeah. Well, there's a plot, but it's but it's only discernible after. Well, and, and I think the plot, it's sort of a meta uh, story, yeah. right? It's not, it's not a literal plot of a, of a wife and a husband no. in a house. It's, I think, as you describe, I think clearly the, the him, the poet, right? He is, he's God. He is the creator. She as mother is mother earth, you know, she's tending to all these things. And then, you know, the fans who, uh, you know, come to the house and uh, wreak, chaos mm-hmm. at the end of the movie, yeah. right? I mean, that's, that's us, but right? But there's the it's whole, humanity. you know, Adam and Eve, and, you know, I don't know if you caught... Cain and like, Abel. Yeah, Cain and Abel, but the <laughs> yeah. second time I saw it, I realized when she sees Ed Harris as what ends up being mm-hmm. him being Adam throwing up in the toilet, and she looks at his back, and it's a scar. He, he covers his back from the wound, which is yep. the rib, Yep, you know what I mean? And then... <laughs> the, literally the next scene, Michelle Pfeiffer shows up, hey, I'm his wife, and you're like, yeah, whoa, what? totally. You know? Yep. Uh, and by the way, both Ed Harris and Michelle, I mean, everybody fucking killed it in this movie, but Michelle Pfeiffer, like, you know, she hasn't been, she's making movies and doing stuff, but man, you forget how fucking awesome she is. Yeah. It's just really like cool to see her hammer in a, in, in a every movie. scene. Yeah. Every scene in close ups, just like, Oh, what? And just these crazy back and forth close ups, like face to face close ups, no over the shoulders, really. Uh, and you're just like, wow. Uh, Totally. Yeah. No, I mean, I think this is a movie too that, you know, a filmmaker, most filmmakers would never get the opportunity, the chance or the financing to make a movie like this. But Darren Darren Aronofsky took everything that he has uh, generated and created over the course of his career. And he, he basically like, you know, put all his chips on the table and said like, all right, I'm going to take all the traditional tropes of, you know, Hollywood uh, cinematic practice, and I'm going to put you know the biggest movie star in the world, <laughs> in the form of Jennifer Lawrence, yeah. right, in the starring role of this film that you know is going to be unlike any other kind of movie um, that you'll see you know this year or next well, year. And kudos or last to her year. for putting herself through something that you know with the budget of the movie was 35 million dollars the yeah, same totally. budget as it you know what i mean yep. and and uh she is in the position uh in her career where she probably makes what she make 15 million a movie at least yeah uh so sure. like there's and there's no way she got paid that in this movie because there was a lot of visual effects and a lot of physical production yep uh which we can talk about so obviously what people got paid is pure assumption, but she didn't have to basically star in a art movie where she gets completely tortured more or less, you know, through the whole movie. And I think she killed it. I mean, she did. I I mean, she carried, if she doesn't work, the movie doesn't work. Right. So she carries the movie 
you can have all the Javier Bardem you want. He's amazing. Well, he I just think, has to, I think he just for, has to look at the camera. Yeah, totally. You know I mean, and you're like, oh wow, what's <laughs> happening with him? You know. Well, and there's a lot of I think a lot of humor in his portrayal too. Oh, I think yeah. I think she had the most difficult role. Jennifer Lawrence's character had the most difficult role to play in a way in that, um, you know, how do you get into the head and the mindset of the character because the the literal sort of story, the one that, you know, is sort of the surface story is so thin in so many ways. It's yeah. sort of, she's this kind of doughy eyed, you know, supporter of all of his, you know, uh, struggling with writer's block and all this kind of stuff, you know? Yes. Yeah. So she's sort of this ultra supportive, you know, wife tending to the home and all this kind of very kind of 1950s sort of June Cleaver mm-hmm. kind of vibe. But at the same time too, even that is pretty thin. And so it starts to need then some other element. She has to tap into something else, I would think, as yeah. an actor in order to get to a place where she can actually start to fulfill and play this this part of, I guess, Mother Nature, right? For, well, then Mother she also, well, then she also transitions in, into becoming the audience because yeah. mm-hmm. she, she goes from a... Well, I kind of know what's going on. I, you know, we're doing this and we're we're creating this house and he's a poet and we're doing this. And then once Ed Harris starts showing up, she's like, "Who are you and what are you doing here and why are these things happening and what's going on?" And so she becomes the audience. So she she gets to play the quizzical side and just to be like, "I have no fucking clue what's happening and I'm mm-hmm. really but she gets to take it one step further by saying like we're observing it and saying, "I don't know what's happening." She in the film gets to say, I don't know what's happening, but you're doing it in my space and get the hell out of my house. Totally. I mean, so there's like those, those, uh, things. I mean, I guess we can start using that to transition into the visual effects. Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose as we start to get into talking about it, um, in terms of visual effects, we should, uh, probably pay respects to, uh, our good buddy, uh, Ian fails and, um, his VFX blog.com. Ian did, a really amazing um, story yeah. that maybe we can put a link to in the show notes, but he did an amazing story an interview with um, Dan Schrecker about the visual effects in the film. And of all the stuff that I looked for uh, online and sort of researching this, that is the definitive article uh, at this moment in time that I could find um, about the visual effects. And so, yeah. uh, you know, a high praise to uh, Ian for his, uh, his great sort of journalistic uh, efforts here and giving us something to kind of go off of. Um, so there are lots of visual effects in this movie. Um, if for no other reason than, um, the setting, uh, too, and then the events that I guess have to transpire, it's, it's such a, it all takes place essentially in this one house, um, in the country. And, um, from what I was able to glean, uh, one of the things they did long before they ever shot a single frame of film was they had these really long, um, rehearsal processes that they did uh, in a sort of makeshift stage environment where they taped off stuff and they would choreograph everything that they were going to do because of the way in which it was shot that you described, I think, really well. Um, All handheld, 16 millimeter, um, following very closely with um, our our main actor, Jennifer Lawrence, and uh, with uh, Matthew Levitique doing the shooting uh, and... Uh, it, rehearsing everything and choreographing everything. So they had this really well-oiled machine in terms of how they're going to execute shots um, on the day on set. Yeah. And then 
from there, I find this really interesting, and this is probably speaks more to how they spent their money in the budget. But you know, all the all the daytime shots, um, they built a house in a field mm-hmm. or on location outside. Um, only the first floor of it was finished, and the rest of it was facade internally. Right, right. And so that they could shoot during the day and have real sunlight and really make it feel, you know, not do it on a stage and do green screen comps and all that stuff mm-hmm. and and nail it. And then after that, they literally built the house on a stage for all the nighttime stuff and the later destruction of the house um, where they built the house for real. So they built it studs studs in, you know, with wiring and plumbing and water and all that stuff so that when the house started to become destroyed, when a wall got punched through, you would literally see wires and pipes and all the things yep. you would normally see, which I, I mean, from a practical nature, I, you know, tugs at my heartstrings because it's like, of course, you could easily <laughs> fake that, right? You could easily be like, oh, in post, we'll add pipes jutting out of the wall. But it's yeah. like, no, let's build it and destroy this house for real uh, because it's going to feel better. Uh, and maybe it's probably cheaper to to prefab, you know, a house for real than it is to do all that VFX anyway totally. with a limited budget. Well, and it's a great uh, idea too to do a lot of as much as I think that was one of the things that uh, the supervisor was saying too is that um, Aronofsky really did have uh, an interest in trying to do as much as they could do practically. And so, in the context of building that house on the stage for most of the um, nighttime. Uh, action that was going on, like to have that level of detail. Um, and, and, you know, even kind of weirdly kind of plays a part in the story too, is her character is as sort of mother earth, you know, fixing up the house and painting the house and decorating the rooms. And there's this sort of recurring thing of this, uh, this sink that isn't properly, uh, mm-hmm. s- properly set or something. I can't remember what she, how yeah. she describes it, but, um, that it, it's not really load bearing and it's not really installed all the way yet. And people, as they continue to sort of, um, the numbers of people who are in the house continue to expand. They, these people keep sitting on it. And she's like, can you please not yeah. sit on that? It's not, you know, mounted correctly or whatever. And then it's, it eventually does break. And it's sort of one of the things that starts the, um, yeah, the real serious downfall in the, the action. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, a, yeah. I mean, I'm laughing, but yeah, it is. It's a little Noah's Ark nod to his own movies. And I, and I think too, right. They well, said that, so everything shot super 16, which is uh, unusual. I think uh, Black Swan was shot super 16 too, if I'm not so mistaken. So was The Wrestler. Oh, and The Wrestler too, yeah. And Pi, I believe. Yeah, well, I guess Pi, that doesn't really surprise me in a way in that I think that's I mean, really it's, yeah, it's the first, first movie, feature. Yeah. But yeah. it's interesting to come back to that format again and again yeah. too. And well, then also Super 16 can blow up to 35, so you can get a nice... Yeah, it's a um, one-to-one. yeah. And then uh, I guess they they did mention they did shoot a few things on uh, red, yeah, uh, for some higher resolution stuff for some of the visual effects uh, work. Um, I think probably the biggest effect in the whole thing was the um, like the the unburning effect of the house. Yeah, um, I I dug that, and I was thinking about it while I was watching it. Like, it looks really real. But it could be visual effects. But then reading Ian's article, they literally did MoCo time lapse mm-hmm. of these little time lapse moves in passes, and they would do it clean, and then they would like torch it 
a little bit and yep. distress it and do a pass. And I think he said they did up to like 15 passes um, with with some VFX augmentation, just little, you know, touches. Mm-hmm. But but really it's just fading in between these, yeah. these passes, which I find, uh, I mean, they're gorgeous, gorgeously shot. And they're, you know, you really, and the sound design obviously helps it with the creaking and the distressing sounds of the mm-hmm. wood and other things. Um, uh, I, 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 I really liked, I mean, there's no, not really anything in the movie I didn't like, you know, which, uh, I don't know, some people would say is, yeah, of course, but, <laughs> um, you know, I, I found from, from Ian's article, th- things that were really not surprising, but sort of always makes me, you know, as a filmmaker myself, I have, you know, my own struggles of, you know, ideas you have that come to you during production or things you had beforehand. And it's always nice to see sort of major themes or ideas in a film that came together in post. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like the heart of the house was apparently initially just going to sort of be blackness. Yep. And then in the script, it was blackness. And then it became over time, they're like, Oh no, it doesn't work. We need to see something. And so, you know, the heart, uh, aspect, you know, was something that was developed in the post-production process, which furthered the story. Um, yeah, just and, just to clarify too, for any for those maybe who who haven't seen the film but are listening anyway, the uh, the heart of the house uh, is a recurring motif that occurs throughout the narrative in the film, where um, the Jennifer Lawrence character at at uh, certain moments. Um, uh, pauses and hears a sound and moves to touch the wall of the house. And in doing so, she, she sort of sees, uh, inside the wall in essence, um, this, this heart. And from the beginning of the film through to the end over time, this heart or this kind of wound in the wall, it's slowly, each time we go back to it, it's slowly sort of decaying or dying. Uh, yeah. Like calcifying or carbonizing or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting uh, aspect, but yeah, that, that visual certainly, and the design of that, um, it feels like, you know, it's, it's, it's funny to read that that came in post because it does feel like it's such a significant um, component, certainly in the way yeah. that the film is cut together. Yeah. And even the, the thing, the thing that I loved about it is there's a really subtle thing that he does with Jennifer Lawrence, or uh, maybe she came up with it. I'm not, I, I don't know, but when they cut to that shot, you know, of her looking into the wall, it, it starts over her shoulder. She puts her hand on the wall then it cuts to her face super close up. Mm-hmm. So like the camera is the wall plane. Yeah. And she's sort of gazing just off camera. And then she lifts her head and turns just slightly and like eyeballs the camera. And it's so subtle, but it's super powerful. You're like, okay, she's locked in you know, this, and then you push through the wall and through the thing, which of course we later come to find is she's, it's her own heart. Right. Uh, but, um, I, I love all the subtle touches, like when she's drinking the powder and the water and they add in all those little electrical five filaments, you know, going through it, like nebula kind of stuff, you know, yeah, such an interesting effect. The, the need to like, when she's kind of, really stressed out and feeling really anxious and kind of like at a, at a, a point of, uh, extreme stress, she'll drink yeah. this liquid that has this glowy yeah. golden kind of sparkles like in it. Cosmic Alka-Seltzer. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. And then, um, 
the other thing that, you know, the, the one effect that I thought was, is so subtle, but I really, really liked it was the, um, the, the crystal, uh, that oh, yeah. he has in his office that is mm-hmm. sort of this talisman kind of thing that, uh, it's, it's the remnants he says of the, um, uh, his old house, right. That had burned to the yeah. ground and it was the one thing he picked up and, and resurrected from the house. And, and then they built this new house around this item. And there's this, um, really beautiful kind of glowing, uh, effect within the confines of this. It's, it's basically looks like a, like a charred kind of crystalline rock or almost like maybe a, a large piece of, uh, obsidian or something. And within the uh, crevices of this, they've created this kind of orange, um, kind of uh, glowing effect that sort of, yeah. yeah, like sort of looks like it's transporting through the object. And um, in the the uh, interview with the supervisor, Dan Schrecker, he was talking about they experimented with several different looks for that. Um, they had tried doing something where there was almost like a, it was almost like a, like a window into a, you know, a, a universe, like a star field kind of thing where it, depending on how you looked at it and moved it around, there'd be some, uh, parallax, like looking into like an augmented reality kind of window or something. Um, and then came up with this more subtle effect, which I actually thought was, was really nice. It was one of the really, um, Mm -hmm. visually captivating things, um, uh, small things within the movie, but that was, uh, I thought design wise was a really nice look. Yeah, and then of course, as a plot point, you know, it's the heart, you know, the 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 burnt, you know, carbonized heart of the previous mother. Yep, which you don't really know until the yeah, end, or at least I didn't pick up. Squeezes on that. it? No, no. There's no way to pick that up. It just squeezes it into the diamond, uh, or whatever it is. Um, and I guess we could use that as a we could go to that specific scene when he's. After we'll get back to the middle, but at the end when the the house explodes, there's a couple like very big visual effects sequences, which is which is Jennifer Lawrence on fire, mm-hmm. the house explosion, and then uh, Javier Bardem ca- carrying her charred corpse through the house, ripping the the her heart out of her chest, squeezing yep. it into a diamond, and she turns into ash and kind of collapses. Like that's it's a heavy sequence, yeah, and there's a lot riding on that. You know what I mean? After after all the like serious practical chaos that's mm-hmm. happened in the house, um, like it's it's a it's a very calm moment, but it if it doesn't work, like the whole movie falls apart. Yeah, totally. And I mean, it works beautifully, um, but it's really uh, high concept. You know, but it's yeah. one of those things that like, yeah, I think you're right. Like if it doesn't come together and if it doesn't feel believable if, or or if we're so uh, far gone that it's laughable at that point, I think maybe, you know, you've lost uh, some of the audience uh, for sure. But I, I think in terms of the um, the success of the visuals, the combination, I think, of some practical and uh, a lot of augmentation digitally, I think it's really, really strong. You know, starting with the sequence, the burning, you know, where she sets herself on fire, um, you know, there's a calmness in it. She's not writhing in pain. It's not, it's not horrific. It's not a monk with a tire around him. You know, it's, it's actually, it's more similar to that where she is, she knows what needs to happen and, um, and she needs to, you know, 
have the Armageddon, basically. She is Armageddon at that point. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the cleansing fire, uh, so to speak. And she, the, the, the very subtle, like without being gory, sort of skin decay, skin mm-hmm. burning, the flames all sat in really nicely. Um, and of course the movie opens with that image. So now right. of a different woman. So now we we're starting, you know, it's, we're pretty much close to the end. It's like 10 minutes left in the movie at that point. Uh, you start to be like, okay, there's a cyclical nature of something happening here. And, you know, and then we go to the house exploding externally, which is probably the only shot that feels like a VFX shot. Uh, and I'm not sure you can do much about it. I'm not saying that in terms of execution. It's just we've never been outside the house really other than one other shot. Yeah, and I think uh, all before, the shots of the actually exterior of the house, looking yeah. back at it, one when it's really pristine and yeah. sort of uh, this beautiful moment, like it's it's CG too. Like it's not yeah. real. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. Um and it's interesting when you when you go from a such a such a stylized interior um that's all practical for mm-hmm. the most part and then you go to an outside that has a more fantastical nature how hard it is to keep that continuity. Um you know what I mean? Totally. And I I think you know it makes me think like thinking back on it I only I only saw the film one time but thinking back on it I'm there's so many um there's so much stylization in this movie. Like it's a highly stylized aesthetic. It's not um it doesn't look like a normal house, right? Uh, yeah. The layout it, of the house is very unusual in terms of how it's structured. It's kind well, it's of concentric, a, yeah. Yeah, it's like a, yeah, it's like a like a big kind of gazebo, like with a multi-tiered kind of space, and yeah. it's very strange. Um, and then, sort of the geography of the house uh, also becomes somewhat uh, confusing uh, throughout the con the context uh, or, or, or the um, construction of the narrative. And um, I think. Um, you know, when we do go outside and we see this sort of idealized version of the story or of the house, rather, I think it's actually kind of fitting. I think it, it actually helps start to connect the dots as you're watching mm-hmm. the film. I started to feel like, okay, like this is making more and more sense. I did have a sense uh, going in that, you know, knowing that uh, Aronofsky's a big uh, environmentalist, you know, I think that's yeah. a big sort of cause uh, of his uh I think rightfully so too. I think that's probably yeah. a good cause for anybody to take on. But um, he had, I had read that he purchased um, the rights to do uh, Margaret Atwood's Mad Adam trilogy uh, right. as a, a series on, I think on HBO. Um, and so that was something that he was at least in um, early stages of mm-hmm. maybe pre-production on. And so when I started to see trailers for this movie, I was like, and I saw that it was called Mother and it was like her pulling her heart out. I immediately thought of uh, the Shel Silverstein uh, book, The Giving Tree, right? Oh yeah, I haven't <laughs> read that in a long time. And it seems like, oh, okay, like, so, you know, there's clearly a, a a contemporary metaphor. I think the biblical elements getting laid on was something maybe that I didn't, uh, I should have seen coming, I guess, knowing his work, but um. But I think, you know, as you're watching the film and you're starting to piece together what's going on and trying to sort of contextualize like, oh, okay, so 
this is sort of representing this, this is an allegory for that. I think when we see the uh, exteriors of both the house pristine and then of the house uh, in the sort of big VFX sequence towards the end with the giant fireballs and <laughs> everything kind of shooting out of the house, I think um, that really does help uh, us come to some kind of understanding of um, of the total uh, narrative that we've been witnessing. Um, one thing we haven't talked about that I'm so curious uh, as to your thoughts on it is um, probably the most controversial thing in the movie, uh, which is the baby. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't I, know if you had any thoughts on uh, the baby. I, I have no problem with it because it is at once you get to that point in the movie, you are so far into and beyond the, what you think, like you're so confused in, in not in terms of not knowing what's happening, but in terms of like the intensity, like how much further can this go? Right. And you get this lull where you're like, okay, she's having the baby and that's intense, but it's a private intensity. It's not this onslaught. And, you know, it's creation. It's, you know, is this Adam? Like, what is the, who is the baby? And you're like, well, it ends up being essentially a Jesus figure. Right. Yeah. But, but she, she gives birth and then, and that's the moment when she is able to, that's when she finally takes control, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and says, you know, no, he's like, let me hold my, you know, I'm the baby's father. And she goes, I'm its mother, you know? And you're like, okay, she's now taking control from him. Well, and she fights uh, to stay awake. Right, too, and she's fighting to stay so awake, and then eventually the the baby is gone. Yep. Right? And he's out there. I got insanely nervous, right? Which I think is the <laughs> That's point. kind of the point, like, yeah. You're just like, what? Oh, shit, all those people have the baby? Oh, shit. Like, you immediately become her. Yeah. You know, uh, certainly as a parent. You know, I don't know people who don't have kids how they reacted to that scene specifically, but well, it's pretty grisly for sure. Yeah, yeah, but so then, so that they transition from a real baby Mm -hmm. to an animatronic baby to a CG baby. Yep. And personally, I thought you. I mean, you can't tell. It's like it's like Logan style, you know, where where you know things are transitioning. I don't know if they transitioned within shots, but certainly there's no. no. I think yeah, the the real baby baby like peeing all over the place. Yeah, like I was totally appropriate, totally appropriate. (laughs) But but just the little sound design of the neck snapping the oh yeah, and you're like oh fuck, you know, (laughs) like it's just it it's not super gnarly. And then of course the whole communion reflection of mm-hmm. eating the baby and whatever is like people I mean, it's have horrifying. not seen the movie if they hear you say eating the baby they're it's, like what <laughs> it's so like a friend of mine texted me uh after i saw it i was like oh have you seen it he's like no but i read the articles which i don't know why you would do that he's like oh i was a film major i'm used to reading criticism of mm-hmm. before i see something i'm like well you're crazy but um he's like i don't think i could handle the baby part i think it would just make me laugh it would seem it would seem totally ridiculous. And I'm like, I mean, I can I can sort of see that, but at the same time, if you're like really absorbed in the film, the way I think you're supposed to be, mm-hmm. you know, not being judgmental about yeah, it, but sure. I, I I think the way you're well, supposed I think to that's be at the, that moment, I would imagine the filmmaker wants you to be. Yeah, that yeah. that you should be horrified, and you should be, and you should, but also understand. I mean, I don't think it's really that veiled. Yeah at that point, you know, like it's, it's interesting because it's like, it's like 
Old Testament and New Testament. Mm-hmm. You know, like you, 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 they go into the New Testament because that's really New Testament's really where Armageddon and all that kind of shit is, and you know, uh, uh, apocryphal whatever. Yeah, you know. Old Testament is the original sort of like, yeah, God's still uh and I'm I'm a atheist, right? I don't believe in anything <laughs> specific. Actually I'm an agnatheist. I'm just not sure what I don't believe in. Yeah. Uh but but I've read the Bible, you know, many, many times. Uh and growing up both Jewish uh, or as mm-hmm. a Jewish kid, uh and going to services and that stuff with my grandparents and whatever and really getting that whole Old Testament side and then going to like Catholic or Episcopalian day schools because they were this good schools in the neighborhoods sure, you were living in sure. and having to go to church and listening to all that stuff and really, you know, getting actually educated about both sides of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, you know, could very clearly see the split between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, and I like that he made the New Testament so much more uh, side of it if you really want to, I mean, there's other allegor, allegorical natures to it, but it's uh, so violent and and uh, like abrupt in places, yeah. which I think is what that book, those books are really. And, and obviously super crammed in tight, you know, like, you know, extent, you know, really, um, exp, you know, timelines really sped up, obviously, in terms, mm-hmm. if you were going to try and follow a story. Um, but I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I wanted to be completely overrun. Like I'm, I was ready. I was laying in the street being like, jump your, jump your big monster truck over me. You know, <laughs> like I'm totally, I want to see under the truck when you drive over, you know, like. Yeah. And they definitely like at that point in the story, I think when we, we have the, if, I can't remember exactly what order it happens in, but the, uh, I don't know if the baby is before or after the arrival of like uh, the uh, SWAT team and, uh, right, the SWAT, or I think it's a SWAT team or some yeah. military garb group, and they show up in the house. And the Kristen Wiig character, she plays the uh, literary agent yeah. of the poet, and she shows up at the house and is, you know, seems kind of innocuous and friendly. And we're sort of used to Kristen Wiig as sort of a a light, uh, you know, comedic yeah. persona, and we don't see her for a while. And then as the uh, sort of the intensity of events in the house. Um, sort of ramp up, we do see her later uh, where she's actually trudging through the house and she's executing people right? (laughs) and like shooting them in the head. And there they're doing a lot of like digital, um, a lot, it's a lot of it's practical, but they're also doing some digital squibs and and yeah, creating like sprays and blood and brain. And it's pretty grisly and it's so uncharacteristic for her. I'm sure it was a fun part for the actress. And then she blows up, up, right? She gets totally blown to pieces. (laughs) Uh, The resistance. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many interesting things that go on in this movie. Um, You know, I think it's, of my friends who saw it, who who contacted me after the fact, a couple friends in New York too, who saw it and were just like, I, you know, I just, I thought it was ridiculous. I didn't like it, you know, or, or it was trying too hard to be this kind of art film, but it was still such a Hollywood thing. And, and uh, one of my friends was even saying that I, I think they didn't quite understand. They thought at the end, he didn't get the end. He was like, it didn't even, it wasn't even, didn't even look like Jennifer Lawrence. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, it's not supposed to. <laughs> yeah. And so there was like a, a maybe a cognitive uh, disconnect there. Um, but, you know, I think it's one of those ones where, um, the things that happen in the story and the the attempt to tell a story of this 
sort to try to create a big Hollywood, like, you know, what did you say? 2000 theater wide release film. Something, or something like that. I mean, it could be less, but it was pretty wide. I, I, th- this is the one thing that I would bring up about the movie. And I'm curious to hear what you think about it. Um, I think it's brilliant uh, how Aronofsky constructed this narrative and how he brought all these sort of traditional Hollywood forces, including visual effects to bear, to tell this type of movie. But I wonder if his execution of the film in the end, uh, will it in the, in the sort of, um, you know, like the exploding blood filled light bulb and some of the gore stuff. I wonder if, do you think that in the long run, um, the movie opening wide as it did and sort of having the sort of um, narrative structure it has. And I think the really important message that the film is trying to convey, do you think that um, it will miss the audience who most could benefit from seeing it? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I mean, like, will it alienate the like? I think you and I would go see a movie like this and be like, "Dude, that was that was so crazy. I dug it. It was <laughs> it was so weird." And you know, I clearly that was the case. But you know, I think that you know maybe well, he's preaching to the converted. That's what I, a lot of people have said. Like, it's so heavy-handed. It's like Bernie Sanders. Like, he's only talking to the people who want to hear him. Right. And I think you can kind of say that about anybody, really. Though, like Judd Apatow only really makes movie for Judd Apatow fans. There just happens to be more of those than there are fans for this kind of movie. You know what I mean? Do you think there's a way in which this movie could have been made and it could have still told the story it told mm, and maybe have a wider audience and connect with more people? I mean, I guess, but then it wouldn't be... Here's I'll I'll make it weirdly a biblical, Mm -hmm. another biblical film's uh, analogy where I think you, where what you're saying could have been done. Yeah. Where I'm not sure in this case... In The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's Mm -hmm. movie, he is such a fervent, you know, evangelical that he couldn't disassociate himself from the material. And I think the movie suffers for it. There are moments of pure brilliance in that movie. He is a incredible filmmaker. The moments where Jesus is carrying the cross through town and he falls and you cut to those flashbacks and you see his mother yeah having these memories of him as a child just falling and hurting himself and her wanting to help him mm-hmm. oh jesus stick a knife in my <laughs> heart you know what i mean yeah. like it's yeah you're like wow yeah, it's masterful power, filmmaking for powerful sure. moments but the overly religious nature of the film and now some people would say well it's a movie about jesus but that doesn't it doesn't have to be to get the same message across and yeah i yeah, think i hear what you're saying i think if he made a movie that was more of that had the fantastical stuff kind of taken out of it and made a movie about just a guy who was so uh, convicted of his beliefs, mm-hmm. his convictions were so strong that he was willing yeah. to go to any lengths to preserve those beliefs that it would have been a much, it would have resonated more with people who are not specifically believers who would just be like, dude, respect, you know, like to yeah, the him and, <laughs> and well, just to the, the concept, right? Sure. You're selling the concept of Jesus. Yeah. You don't have to sell Jesus. Yeah, no, that's So in a this point. case, in so I think in his case, actually, yes, you could have changed the movie in Mel Gibson's case to reach a wider audience than mm-hmm. just the converted, right. literally, yeah. right? In Aronofsky's case, because it's pure allegory for like 10 different things, I don't think you could change it 
really, and while it may only reach the people who like Aronofsky's movies, you could hope over time that people will come across it and, you know, maybe they'll like it or maybe they won't. But yeah, I wonder how it'll age. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Um, you know, like this is a, this is a, a film school movie for sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like you could, you could teach an entire course, multiple, multiple disciplines could teach courses from this movie, <laughs> be it, be it, you know, a religion class or a sociology, sociology class or a film class or whatever. Um, I, I just, yeah, I don't th- think that there is, um, that there is something you could point to and be like, well, if you just did that differently, maybe it would have reached a wider audience. Personally, I think that is again, just pure supposition that he made a lot of money for the studio with Black Swan. Noah mm-hmm. did pretty well. You know, he's obviously a respected guy. He's got a lot going on and some studio head somewhere was like, we're going to roll the dice and one of two things is going to happen, which is what happens with any movie, but specifically with a movie that, you know, is taking chances is it's either going to flop and it'll bear out in international and uh, VOD and digital and, you know, whatever, or it'll be huge. And we will be the, we will be look like geniuses for like betting on this crazy movie. Um, yeah, I can see that meeting happening in my head. No, um, I think that's, I think that's really interesting. I think that's like, it's not a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot of money in the real world, yeah. in the movie world. It's not a lot of money, right? I mean, you have Blade Runner, which is quote unquote, a flop. That's well, $150 million movie. Just in the United States. I think it's well, doing but I'm pretty just well saying, everywhere else. Of course. But yeah. I'm just saying the, the general press yeah. says, oh, yeah. and they said the same thing about, you know, Aronofsky got a cinema grade, cinema grade score or whatever the thing is of an F, Yeah, you know, because of whatever. And, you know, Scorsese comes to his rescue and says, you, this, A, those grades are bullshit. B, yeah. you don't get it. There's, you know a, I mean? there's a great uh, interview on the, the DGA podcast where, uh, and man, it's so fun to listen to because uh, it's Aronofsky's being interviewed by uh, William Friedkin. Oh, wow. <laughs> and William Friedkin, I don't know if you've heard him speak or read any oh, of yeah. his writings and stuff, but he's he's pretty- He's a saucy guy. Well, and he's pretty religious. You oh, know? I didn't like, know that. He's He's got a really strong uh, sort of religious sensibility uh, about him. And, and um, he talks a lot about it uh, with Aronofsky and he tries to pin Aronofsky down as to whether or not he's a, a believer. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's pretty clear in the interview where he stands, but- um. But uh, it's a really great. Uh, is it about mother? Yeah, yeah. The whole interview oh, is okay. about mother. It's the uh, oh. the DGA series podcast. Um, oh yeah, I gotta get uh, that. Which I, that one maybe we'll put that in the show notes as well. It's a really good. Uh, it's a good interview. I think it was episode like ninety. So I want to say like ninety four or ninety five, maybe. Um, well, a friend of mine had pointed out to me, and I didn't. You know, I just I don't know like a ton about European art films, mm-hmm. but. Apparently, I think it's a Polish guy made a movie called Son of Saul. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. that is basically, from yep. what it was described to me, is the Holocaust as portrayed inside of a house. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've I've seen Son of Saul. That's, I hadn't okay. thought of that connection, but yeah. it's And it's tough. It's a tough movie. It's good, but oh, man. Yeah. I never want to see it again. <laughs> right. 
Hey, um, you know, there's one other thing uh, that is mentioned uh, in the the VFX blog piece that's so great where I, I thought it was really interesting. I just wanted to touch on it and see if maybe you had any thoughts about it too. But um, they talked to Dan Schrecker and uh, Dan Schrecker talks about working with uh, these guys at um, a company called Paper Ghost. And uh, they use SketchUp uh, to build a replica in SketchUp, the 3D Google SketchUp mm-hmm. program. Um of the house and they hooked it up to a, a Samsung uh, phone. They ran it off a Samsung phone hooked up to a gear VR and they were able to use the goggles along with a joystick and both uh, Levitique and Aronofsky, they basically were able to like move around the house before it was built. They could look at angles and different places where they could set up shots. Um, and so they were using this um, as part of that uh, choreographing previs yeah. process and uh I don't know. Have you, have you ever done anything like that with the VR in terms of revising stuff that you've shot? We did. We did when we were working on Invisible. Um, we did, you know, basic um, on Doug Lyman's series, VR mm-hmm, series. Mm-hmm. We did some basic prevising of like a hospital scene where you know Doug or one of the other directors could put on a headset and be like, "Oh, this is what I would see," you know, in this hallway. Or whatever is super, you know, rudimentary. Um, but it's kind of I interesting, mean, though, to think about like I using the technology smart. in that way, and to start to really do previs um, really interactively, like to build mm-hmm. out all the assets and do it interactively, where the director and the DP and whomever else in production can get in to a sort of low res version of the environment and really start to screw around and sort of get a sense of, all right, how do we want to do this? How do we want to tell this story? And so that kind of use of VR, especially off running off a mobile phone, I thought was kind of rad. Yeah. Um, just to, and they could take screenshots. They yep. set it up so they could grab screenshots so they could, you know, board it out almost from their own POV. Yeah, I really like that. I think especially on a film like this, which, you know, arguably by comparison to some other films is fairly low budget. Um, I'm sure we'll uh, start to see more and more uh, tools like that, that, you know, in the continual sort of democratization of uh, yeah f- filmmaking and production and post-production well, I mean, it's processes. Already, it's already being used on the higher end by like Cameron and totally. the Avatar world. And, um, you know, as... Um, and ILM X Lab. Yep. Uh, you know, our 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 all our good friend David Strapinis was part of that original yeah, team yeah. on that Avatar to set up yeah. that that, you know, set up they use it on Guardians. They, you know, all the big movies use it in a outside in capacity. This would be an inside out capacity mm-hmm. of sorts in the in the headset. Um I think with the advent of more of these um, like uh, Facebook, you know, Zuckerberg announced the Oculus Go or whatever it's called. It, it's basically a Gear VR without needing a phone. Like hmm. it's a it's a standalone device that you would just load stuff onto or have a wireless connection of some kind, and you would just put it on. And it already has a screen and storage and everything in it. You don't have to put a phone in there. Um, and then and then they're making a separate one that has another one that has inside out tracking. So it has, you know, cameras on it that are scanning the walls and all that. So you don't need the sensors right. and, and all those things and all that like backpackless computerless. Now that needs a computer, but you know, the general moving towards computerless 
idea of well, and even the like freedom. you know the 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 new uh, you know two camera system on the back of some of the uh, the Apple iPhones and stuff, and the right. ability to capture not just images but to capture depth based data, yep. um, you know, in a mobile device really quickly. Uh, you know, it, there was the Google Project Tango a while back, yep. which was basically a Connect, you know, on a, a little tablet, and then I think mm-hmm. they put that onto a phone. But I think once we start to see more and more of that kind of handheld um, uh, data acquisition uh, in both uh, sort of an, uh, in an AR kind of capacity, I think that's mm-hmm. going to unlock a lot of interesting possibilities for, um, for visual effects. Uh, well, and you have, you have people like Matt Workman who working on like Cine Designer where he's, you know, not mm-hmm. only, not only setting up, you know, all g e camera and, you know, what have you, you know, kit that you can use as models inside of Cinema 4D to, you know, or uh, rather Maya um, to 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 do all that, um, you know, previs and rigging and you know actual light transmission, you know, physical light models and stuff like that, mixed with uh, mixed with um, the ability to then do a, you know, light running, uh, VR setup, or even at some point AR setup, there's a, there's a, a VR app, an AR app rather on the iPhone store, the app store. That's not, it's in beta right now. I think it's called shot blocker or something like that. I'll hmm. figure out what it is, but it basically allows you to use your camera and it has a library of people and whatever. So when you're on your scout, you can actually like put your camera up and grab a guy. Yeah, I saw that. Put him in there. Drop him in there and see how you frame a shot and do. And then you can also, you know, tell what time of day it's going to be where you are, and it'll change the shadows. And you know, it's um, the fact that we can do that on our phones is moving towards, you know, like you said, now the previs world is getting democratized in a certain way. Yeah, it's really exciting. I mean, I think if you know, for for young students or anybody who uh, maybe has had a passion for storytelling or filmmaking, I think it's such an exciting time to be uh, involved in, you know, the field of storytelling and filmmaking, and, and uh, certainly uh, visual effects too. Because I, I feel like we're we're just on the cusp of all this stuff. Really. Um, turning a new page, I think, and really allowing people to, with little money and maybe few resources and, um, to really tell pretty interesting and compelling stories, uh, using all these, uh, these tools. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, uh, do you have any, uh, closing thoughts or things about, uh, mother that, uh, you were dying to talk about that we didn't touch upon? Um, I can't remember. <laughs> There's so much there's I just feel so like much, I have to ask, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there's so much practical. There's the practical nature of the film is stunning in terms of the achievement. There's a guy who was the onset uh, photographer, Nico Tavernis. Mm-hmm. You can look him up on Instagram, N-I-K-O. Um, his pictures are incredible. And they really show the how the film, you know, was shot. Because you see, like, you know, camera guy standing there like covered in soot and dust and you know like you can really get a feel for the physical physicality of the film um i my thoughts are really like people should see this movie like as a 
even if you don't understand it or you don't like it, I still think there's value to understanding how something like this can be made. Yeah, I And agree. maybe it inspires you to do what you think, how to do it the right way if you yeah. don't like it or whatever. But there is so many chances taken in the movie that most movies don't do because either they're just not meant to do that because they're not that kind of movie mm -hmm. or they can't because they're strangled by a studio or a investor or what have you that, you know, rarely, you know, um, uh, I feel lucky to say my friend, uh, Shane Carruth, who I think is oh, one yeah. of the also similar voices, like a guy who makes movies that even if you don't understand them, like upstream color or primer or what have you, that the guy has a unique, perspective is he ever going to make a topiary hey uh, have you read that script so i have not i'm keep, keep trying to get it from him oh, I've, um, I've got a copy but, i'll send you if you want yeah but there's um <laughs> so good there's but people like him and aronofsky yeah, yeah. who who and many others who who make movies that make you say I'm not sure what I just saw. Yep. Char Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, I think, is a perfect example. Totally. I mean, that movie literally will make you go to sleep after you see it because your brain's like, I can't think anymore. This is crazy. Yeah, well, stuff that's um, really pushing the envelope and trying something yeah. new and trying to create something fresh. I think, um, you know, there's been, uh, there was a great article. I, I can't remember who wrote it, but, um, or where I read it. <laughs> but it was, I think it might've been in like, deadline or something. And uh, I don't know, but it was some sort of an editorial article. And it said that, you know, the thing that we really need right now at this moment in time, you know, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I love the big movies and the blockbusters and the Marvel films yeah. and the Star Wars movies. I mean, I love that stuff, but they were saying what we really need right now in cinema is, you know, this generation's, this era's Bonnie and Clyde, you know, like a film that's going to kind of like break the mold and kind of crack it open a little bit and take yeah. us into some new territory in terms of cinema and storytelling. And, you know, uh, I don't know that uh, mother is that story, but um, it's definitely fun to see somebody uh, really trying on some, put trying on something uh, really different, you know, like mixing yeah. it up and doing something totally out there. But there's filmmakers like Yorgos Lanthimos, the guy who did did the lobster? Oh yeah, yeah. And got that and new film. David that looks so disturbing. Yeah, my friend saw it, Killing of a Sacred Deer. He saw it at Fantastic Fest and said it's incredible. Um, and even people like David Lowry, who I think straddles the art world and the big studio world with movies like Intent Body Saints or a Ghost Story. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And then he goes and makes Peach Dragon. You know, and you're like, what? Uh, <laughs> you know. But, I think sure. personally that's that's the smart move, right? Because you you play in the big pool, you you up level in whatever way, whatever that means. Well, and you could even uh, say Ryan Johnson too, like going sure, from Ryan Brick Johnson. to uh, yeah. Looper. Was that his right too? Yeah, and yeah. On now to the big the big world of yeah. Star Wars. So he's kind of going in the opposite direction, but um, but using but using, I think the trick, which I think is what David's been able to do most effectively, is make the big movie and then while you're waiting for the movie gods to say you can make another big movie you make all the small movies that you want to make uh that no one's gonna tell you what to do on yeah yeah and it's right? and, and so, it's you, so you cool. kind of have it both ways it's so cool to see so many of these kind of you know quote unquote smaller movies um really taking advantage of 
visual effects too. And visual effects artists getting an opportunity maybe to do something they haven't done before, maybe on a big show at a big company and have an opportunity uh, and carve out a space for themselves to do something, you know, on a smaller budget show and try some new things, you know? So I think, um, yeah. Like like the other movie we did, A Monster Calls. Yeah. Perfect example. It's a fantastic film. Yeah, it's it's like win-win all around, I think, for that stuff. Yeah. Well, listen, dude, we're getting uh, close to uh, a little over an hour here, so uh, we should probably uh, put this one to bed. But um, Jason, if... uh, if anybody listening wants to uh, argue with you about mother and uh, or share theories and thoughts about it or pick your brain further, uh, where can they get in touch with you? Uh, Facebook, Jason Diamond, Twitter, Jason Diamond, Instagram, Jason Diamond, you know, wherever you can find me. Uh, and my website with my brother, thediamondbros.com. Excellent. What about you? Uh, well, you can always find me on the, the Twitters at Matt Wallen. Uh, my website is mattwallen.com. And I'm always uh, causing trouble at Virginia Commonwealth University's School of the Arts in Richmond, Virginia. Um, but thanks a lot, you guys, for, for listening. And uh, if you have or haven't seen Mother and have thoughts about it, um, you can always go on uh, the website at fxguide.com where uh, this podcast is listed. And um, there's a comments section there. All you have to do is uh, register and uh, put some comments on there. We love getting feedback from you guys. And um, any thoughts you have about, again, this show, um, uh, thoughts about the visual effects, things we didn't talk about or maybe that we, we got wrong um, uh, or other thoughts you have about uh, the state of uh, sort of more indie cinema or cinema tech, uh, all that stuff would be great um, fodder for discussion. Um, hopefully we'll have some other great shows coming up uh, this fall and into uh, the winter. I think there's a pretty decent slate of stuff coming up um, in the weeks ahead. Um, but yeah, otherwise, uh, for uh, sitting in for for Mike uh, for Effects Guide tonight. Um, uh, Thanks for joining us and uh, we'll talk to you guys uh, next time. See ya. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.